is the Healthy Families Podcast, and I'm your host, Jenny Hatch. Today I'm going to be sharing a few clips from Robert Kennedy Jr.'s recent speech announcing his candidacy for POTUS. Uh, Stoopy Center here, do you want to chime in before I get started with my clips? I would love to hear your thoughts on this man running for President of the United States. It's very exciting. I've been a big fan of his for years, so, you know. All right, I will start in with the first clip. The whole speech was excellent, and I highly recommend everybody go listen to the whole thing, but here are some highlights. The spear tip of that rebellion was a fury that the colonists had against the merger, the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. I... uh... I'm here today to announce my candidacy for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. So there it is. And with that announcement, 10 million heads exploded because the powers that be know exactly what this moment means to America and really to the greater world. Uh, there is no, no bigger BA than Robert Kennedy Jr. He has been fighting the good fight for 18 years and has been highly censored because of his activism around vaccines. And before that, he was an environmental attorney. He shares a story in this speech that's just a banger of a story going after those who are polluting the Hudson River. And it is truly his vaccine activism that I'm aware of and have followed closely for all these years. And he has so much respect in the anti-vaxxer community. You know, they just never stop with the attacks that they have had on him in the media. Um, I believe his first wife, who apparently died of a suicide, but any anti-vaxxer who has a loved one die in a suspicious way, you can almost always point to the fact that this is what has happened to so many people in the activist space, that that their spouses are just gone. Some of their kids have been taken out. And these are the repercussions that have happened for those of us who've stood up and said, no, you're not going to do this to me or my kids. And I'm going to yell as loud as I can to anybody who will listen about what you're doing to people. That is Robert Kennedy Jr. And because he has been so brave and so relentless in his pursuit of truth-telling around the drug industrialists and what they've done to humanity, uh, he has been public enemy number one for a long time. And so it's very exciting. I have a theory, I'll share it, just a theory, that at some critical juncture in the next few months, President Trump is going to invite Robert to be his vice presidential candidate. That's just my my gut sense of where we're at, what we're up against, and what kind of alliances that we can see being made to take down the the therapeutic state that we're in right now with the, the capture of our political systems and our institutions by the drug companies. But we'll see. You know, it's just a theory. But I I was thrilled to go out on Twitter and through social last night and just kind of click around to some of my favorite people. And I am not the only one who had this idea, which made it even more fun. Some people I respect are saying, could this be? Hmm, I wonder. So here is clip number two from Robert Kennedy Jr.'s epic speech announcing his candidacy. This is what happens when you censored somebody for 18 years. I got a lot to talk about. They shouldn't have shut me up that long. Because now I'm going to really let loose on them. For the next 18 months, they're going to hear a lot from me. 
1968. Four years later, in 1972, they voted not for George McGovern, who was very closely aligned with my dad, but instead for George Wallace, who was an ardent segregationist, who was antithetical to everything my father believed in. And it occurred to me then, and it struck me many times since, that every nation, like every nation, like every individual, has a darker side and a lighter side. And that the easiest thing for a politician to do is to is to appeal to our anger and our bigotry and our hatred and our greed and all the lower angels, the darker angels of our character. And that once in a while we get a political leader who tries to do successfully what my dad did, which is to talk to people in a way that gets them to transcend their narrow self-interest, gets them to transcend their fear and their bigotry and their anger and see themselves as part of a community, sees themselves as part of a, of a noble experiment and helps them to find the hero that we all have in each of us. And, and, and my father tried to persuade people that we have to avoid the seduction of the notion that we can advance ourselves as a people by leaving our poor brothers and sisters behind. Or that the only way we can get security is to get rid of our constitutional rights. And he tried to remind Americans that we each need to be a hero. And he succeeded in doing that. And his trail, unfortunately, was cut short. Um, when I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my career and what brought me here. I started out, as Dennis mentioned, as I uh, spent 35 years as an environmental advocate. And at the beginning of my environmental career, yeah, end of 1983, the beginning of 1984, uh, a man who was a mentor of mine offered me a job doing high-level environmental policy in Washington or New York or another job that was kind of uh, doing large purchases and purchases of, of conservation land. And I didn't want to do that kind of environmentalism. I wanted to be in the trenches working with people and in engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat against the big polluters. And I wanted to particularly work with people who were most harmed by environmental injury but also were alienated or marginalized from the mainstream environmental community. My first case as an environmental lawyer was representing the NAACP in a lawsuit against Austin in New York for trying to put a waste transfer station in the oldest black neighborhood in the Hudson Valley. And I found out during that lawsuit that four out of every five toxic waste dumps in our country is in a black neighborhood. The highest, the, the largest toxic waste dump in this country is Emil, Alabama, which is 85% black. The highest concentration of toxic waste dumps in this country is the south side of Chicago. The most contaminated zip code in California is East LA. And black youth, probably the largest at that time problem with black youth was that 48% of them had dangerous levels of lead in their blood. And that lead uh, reduced, dramatically reduced IQ and also causes severe behavioral problems. And I recognize, you know, I spent a lot of my time over the next 30 years fighting on those kind of issues. I spent summer vacation in jail in uh, maximum security prison in Puerto Rico in 2001 because I had successfully sued the Navy to stop bombing probably the poorest community in our country, the people, the black and brown people who live on the island of Vieques who are American citizens, uh, but they are not treated that way. But the other, the other group that I spent the rest of my time with, and the majority of my time, I wanted to work with rural Americans 
and working class Americans, who, and, and particularly hunters and fishermen, the hook and bullet people, who cared deeply as much as any other American about the environment, and yet they felt completely alienated from the mainstream environmental community. Well, I spent my career working for a blue-collar coalition of commercial and recreational fishermen who mobilized on the Hudson River in 1966 to reclaim the river from its polluters. We have on the Hudson River the oldest commercial fishery in North America. It's 350 years old. Many of the people I represent come from families that have been fishing the river continuously since Dutch colonial times. It's a traditional gear fishery. They use the same fishing methods that were taught by the Algonquin Indians to the original Dutch settlers of New Amsterdam and then passed down through the generations. One of the enclaves of the commercial fishery on the Hudson is a little village called Crotonville, New York. It's 30 miles north of New York City on the east bank of the river. And the people who lived there in 1966 were not your prototypical, you know, mainstream environmentalists. They were affluent. They were not affluent. They were the opposite of that. They were carpenters, lathers, factory workers, electricians. Half the people in Grotebelt made their living, or at least some part of it, fishing or grabbing the Hudson. These were people had little expectation that they'd ever see Yellowstone or Yosemite or the national parks. They didn't have the money to take their families on those kind of vacations. For them, the environment was their backyard. It was the bathing beaches, the swimming holes, the fishing holes of the Hudson. Uh, that was their livelihood. It was their recreation. It was their food. Um, and Richie Garrett, who was the first president of the Riverkeeper user of the Fishermen's Association, used to say about the Hudson, it's our Riviera, it's our Monte Carlo. Richie Garrett was a grave digger from Washington, New York. He used to tell his new followers, I'll be the last to let you down. And in, uh, in my, <laughs> 1966, Penn Central Railroad began vomiting oil from a four and a half foot pipe in the Croton Harmon rail yard. And the oil went up the river on the tides and it blackened the beaches and it made the shad taste of diesel. So they couldn't be sold in the Fulton Fish Market in New York City. And all the people in Grotenville came together in the only public building in the town, which was the American Legion Hall. This was a very patriotic community. Grotenville and the neighboring village of Austin had one of the highest enlistment and mortality rates during World War II. And almost all of the original Riverkeeper board and officers and members were former Marines. They were combat veterans from World War II in Korea. Richie Garrett was a former Marine. These weren't radicals. They weren't militants. They were people whose patriotism was rooted in the bedrock of our country. But that night they started talking about violence they saw something that they thought they owned, which was the abundance of these fisheries and the, the purity and richness of the Hudson River's waters. And it was being robbed from them by large corporate entities over whom they had no control. And they'd been to the government agencies that are supposed to protect Americans from pollution. The Corps of Engineers, the Conservation Department, the Coast Guard, and they were given the bumps rush. Richie Garrett, made more than a dozen separate visits to the Corps of Engineers office in Manhattan, begging the Corps colonel to do his job and shut down the Penn Central pipe. And the colonel finally told him in exasperation, these are important people. Speaking of the Penn Central Board of Directors, we can't treat them that way. In other words, we can't force them to comply with the law. So these, this was classic agency capture. These agencies, these regulatory agencies, had become the sock puppets for the industry they were supposed to be regulating. And by this evening in March of 1966, 300 men and women came together in that American Legion Hall in Crotonville, and all of them had come to the conclusion that government was in cahoots with the polluters. And the only way they were going to reclaim the river for themselves is if they confronted the polluters directly. And somebody suggested... They put a match to the oil slick coming out of the Penn Central pipe and burn it up. Somebody else said they should roll a mattress up and jam it up the pipe and flood the rail yard with its own waste. Somebody else said they should float a raft of dynamite into the intake of the Indian Point power plant, which at that time was killing a million fish a day on its intake screens and taking food off their family tables. 
And then a guy stood up and said, well, these bureaucrats came at him from every side and they were all telling him he had to do that. He had the right instincts. He knew that he shouldn't have closed down the country, but he did it. He got... Sorry, there's a blip in my capture here. I don't have the rest of that story ready to go. The story that he tells about the fisheries tied to the Hudson remind me of the role that RFK played in the CDC whistleblower story. There is a member of the CDC higher-ups, one of their senior researchers, a man named William Thompson, who was part of the early autism studies in the early aughts, like 2002-2003. And he decided to become a whistleblower because he said he couldn't live with himself anymore seeing all of the autistic children that were in his orbit. In the early 2000s, there were so many people complaining about the MMR vaccine as being the source of so many problems in their children. Everything from encephalitis to autism to SIDS. That the CDC said, okay, we will do the definitive study and put this to rest. That there is no correlation between the things that you're claiming. Correlation does not equal causation is their mantra. So they did this huge study in Atlanta involving 30,000 kids and published their studies, said, see, zero evidence that the MMR vaccine causes autism. And for the next 23 years, I mean, right up till today, these are the studies that were thrown at parents when they made claims about the MMR vaccine causing serious problems in their kids. Well, William Thompson decided to come out publicly after he had been talking to a father, Brian Hooker, also a research scientist, but also a dad who had an autistic son. And during some phone conversations they had, which Brian recorded, William Thompson admitted that there was some problems in the data tied to these vaccine studies. And he decided to share the data with Brian. So Brian and some other parents who had vaccine damaged kids started going through the data. And what they found was evidence that yes, indeed, there was some causation with the MMR vaccine. And it in fact targeted one specific demographic. And that was little black boys, toddlers, had a higher incidence of autism with this MMR vaccine. And when Brian confronted William with this evidence, he said, oh, you found it. And he was like, explain this, please. Why weren't we told about this? And William said, well, we threw the data in the trash. Before they threw it in the trash, he copied it onto a thumb drive and took it home with him. So he had the original, but the rest of it was just tossed. The statistics were fudged. And starting back then, 20 years ago, the CDC openly was lying about their own test results. It is this for this reason that so many of us are absolutely disgusted with the Center for Disease Control and their capture by the industry. Because tens of thousands of little black children, little black boys were rendered autistic because their parents were not told the truth. So the story started to form and you heard rumors in the anti-vaxxer community about this whistleblower and what is he saying? There was even a congressman, Bill Posey, who talked openly about this on the floor of Congress, asking all the right questions. And in the media and in his fellow Congress critters, there was dead silence. So Robert Kennedy was all over this. He knew what was going on. And he appealed to the NAACP, the Congressional Black Caucus. Look, these are your constituents. It's their kids and grandkids who are being affected. Don't you want to chime in? 
And again, dead silence. Everybody was captured. Captured by the money, captured by the fear that they might be become someone like Robert Kennedy, a pariah in his own family, a pariah in his own community. You know, I'm not going there. It's not worth it. Who cares if a couple little kids develop autism? I've got my job. I've got my money stream. I'm not going up against those people. They will take you out. So who did Robert Kennedy Jr. appeal to? He went to Chicago and talked to Louis Farrakhan. Shared with him the evidence. And Louis was like, I don't know if I want to talk about this. Everybody knows it's dead, dangerous and deadly to go up, the drug in, up against the drug industrialists. But Louis Farrakhan, someone who I deeply respect, uh, decided to stand up. He organized a march on the CDC in Atlanta. He organized a group of his followers, the Nation of Islam in California, to start petitioning California state government, organized rallies, did podcasts, did all sorts of activism around this story, and it went absolutely nowhere. I know because I was blogging it every step of the way. I organized Operation Infinite Tweet around the CDC whistleblower hashtag on Twitter that garnered millions and millions and millions of tweets trying to get the word out. And we were summarily censored and oppressed by Twitter because of our activism. That was when it really got dangerous to be an anti-vaxxer in terms of your free speech because they did not want people hearing this story. So Andrew Wakefield, the doctor in the UK who had been fired, had his law, medical license taken away because of his stance on the MMR vaccine and what it does to children, particularly boys. And the MMR is the measles, mumps, and rubella, which is German measles vaccine. And it has proven to be so dangerous so toxic. It is the one that people just point to as being problematic. When my kid got that shot, things went south. That's the story you hear. And what Andrew Wakefield proposed back in the day was that they simply separate the vaccines. Let's have an individual measles, an individual rubella, and just have them given separately so that we can identify which one of them is truly causing the problems. In response to that request, the drug companies took away the ability for anyone to get an individual vaccine and kept them bundled together and to this day are still administering that shot. Nothing's been stopped. So Andrew came to America, Andrew Wakefield, and decided to partner with Del Bigtree, who had been a Hollywood producer on The Doctor Show, and Louis Farrakhan, Robert Kennedy Jr., and they created this documentary with Brian Hooker and a bunch of other families whose children had been disabled by the MMR vaccine. And they zeroed right in on the black toddlers being the most impacted by this shot in the documentary. And you can go watch the documentary right now on YouTube. It's all over the internet. It's called Vaxxed. And then... Andrew Wakefield, Del Bigtree, and other activists, mostly parents of vaccine-damaged kids, bought a bus. They called it the Vaxxed Bus. And they started traveling around America, Canada. I heard they went over to Australia and the UK. And in this bus, they had a little studio where every time they would show up in a location, they'd put out the word to the families, come tell us your stories. And they gathered thousands and thousands of video documented stories of all these children who had been damaged by the MMR vaccine. Again, radio silence in the media. Very few bloggers talking about this. It was Marcella Piper Terry, me, and just a handful of other blogger, blogging moms who covered this story. But they generated this just mountain 
of evidence and started putting it out on social media and all of that was censored. So you can understand why those of us who are long-term anti-vaccine activists would be very interested in someone like Robert Kennedy Jr. stepping up and throwing his hat in the ring and saying, I am all in with the takedown of these entities. That's a very exciting thing. And he wants to go in there and just fire the bureaucracy, get them gone, and free up our agencies. I personally think we'd all be healthier if the CDC, the FDA, World Health Organization, if all of those entities were just abolished. Trust people that they're smart enough they can figure it out. They don't need some Food and Drug Administration telling them what's safe to eat, especially with the historical record of the FDA, which has zero credibility. The drugs that they allow to come out onto the market have maimed and killed people since the beginning of that organization. And people often forget that the very drug companies that provide us with all of our drugs today were the ones who created cocaine, LSD, PCP. These were legally prescribed drugs before they were deemed dangerous by Congress and kicked to the curb and became street drugs. So I, I think the answer to all of this is to legalize all medications, allow the people to decide for themselves what they will use and what they won't use. That will immediately impact the drug trade if everything's legal and there's no profit to be made on street drugs. And then we need to open up humongous centers of healing for everyone who has been addicted, everyone who needs help out of the pit of despair they are in with their drug addiction. And the drug company should pay for all of that. So there's a few more quotes here from Robert Kennedy Jr. But I am over the moon excited about what this man is going to offer to the conversations we're all having over the next 18 months. And I, like I said before, I would not be surprised if we were to see President Trump ask him to be his running mate. I'm predicting that today. So here's the next clip from his speech. Father uh, in the primary in 1968, four years later in 1972, they voted not for George McGovern, who was very closely aligned with my dad, but instead for George Wallace, who was an ardent segregationist, who was antithetical to everything my father believed in. And it occurred to me then, and it struck me many times since, that every nation, like every nation, like every individual, has a darker side and a lighter side. And that the easiest thing for a politician to do is to is to appeal to our anger and our bigotry and our hatred and our greed and all the lower angels, the darker angels of our character. And that once in a while we get a political leader who tries to do successfully what my dad did, which is to talk to people in a way that gets them to transcend their narrow self-interest, gets them to transcend their fear and their bigotry and their anger and see themselves as part of a community, sees themselves as part of a, of a noble experiment and helps them to find the hero that we all have in each of us. And, and, and my father tried to persuade people that we have to avoid the seduction of the notion that we can advance ourselves as a people by leaving our poor brothers and sisters behind or that the only way we can get security is to get rid of our constitutional rights. And he tried to remind Americans that we each need to be a hero, and he succeeded in doing that. And his trail, unfortunately, was cut short. Um, when I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my career and what brought me here. 
I started out, as Dennis mentioned, as spent 35 years as an environmental advocate. And at the beginning of my environmental career, end of 1983, the beginning of 1984, a man who was a mentor of mine offered me a job doing high-level environmental policy in Washington or New York or another job that was kind of uh, doing large purchases purchases of, of conservation land. And I didn't want to do that kind of environmentalism. I wanted to be in the trenches working with people and in engaged in hand-to-hand combat against the big polluters. And I wanted to particularly work with people who were most harmed by environmental injury, but also were alienated or marginalized from the mainstream environmental community. My first case as an environmental lawyer was representing the NAACP in a lawsuit against Austin in New York for trying to put a waste transfer station in the oldest black neighborhood in the Hudson Valley. And I found out during that lawsuit that four out of every five toxic waste dumps in our country is in a black neighborhood. The highest, the the largest toxic waste dump in this country is Emile, Alabama, which is 85% black. The highest concentration of toxic waste dumps in this country is the south side of Chicago. The most contaminated zip code in California is East LA. And black youth, probably the largest at that time problem with black youth was that 48% of them had dangerous levels of lead in their blood. And that lead uh, reduced, dramatically reduced IQ and also caused severe behavioral problems. And I recognize, you know, I spent a lot. Here's one more clip just to finish up. I can't recommend highly enough. Just go watch the whole speech. It was so good. Probably a quarter of it is applause and people hooting and hollering for this man. At one point, when he started talking about the military industrial complex, somebody set off a fire alarm and he had to come to the mic and say, no, everything's okay. They're just trying to mess with us. But it was really interesting when that happened because it did kind of derail his speech and he was able to bring it back. But go watch it for yourself. These are the level levels of shenanigans and censorship that this man has experienced over most of his career. Anything to shut him up. And it is that stalwart stick of just, I am not going to stop, that endears him to me. So uh, I'm going to take a caller. Hello, Vlad. How are you? Do, doing good. I was going to ask you, uh, good morning, uh, or yeah, I think good morning. it's be afternoon with you um where's the speech is it on youtube or if you could put a link i appreciate it oh yeah i forgot to put the link i found it on reuters it's also on c-span there's several versions of it on youtube you should be able to find it if you just google uh rfk jr announces presidency and there are from last night right uh it was within the last 24 hours i think it was two days ago but i can't remember it just started showing up like in bits and pieces on Twitter and Truth Social and other places. So people are today, they're really deconstructing it and talking about it. But um, C-SPAN's great because they'll just give you everything without any sort of editing. It looks like it's going to be a, a tough fight. A lot of contenders oh. are coming in. I kind of noticed what you mentioned on the speech. He's uh, touching on community. Well, Larry Alders just announced his on March 25th. He's going yeah, to I saw he was Canada. going too. Yeah, and uh, he's, he's going to be speaking in April 28 again. They have the Conservative Summit here in Ontario. I think Sheraton or Hilton, one of them, one of those two, three uh, hotels. And I don't know how much of a chance he has, but he's also going to be using a very similar platform to with RFK and, and more people-based, you know, not just the political problems that you already know of. I don't need to cover. You're well-informed uh and we agree on a lot of things, even a little minute uh, disagreements that we might have, you know. 
but I, I but, love I love Larry. I think he'll be a great voice over the next few months, and and I think all these people who are who are jumping into the race just so they can have a platform to share their views. I think that is awesome. Exactly, huh? That's good. I mean, God bless them. Who whoever may win, uh, Ron DeSantis goes in or Trump. I mean, I'm looking at it. Look, as long as we get someone good. I'm good. Like I told you last time, I'm good. If it's, uh, I'll be willing to vote Democrat for somebody like RFK. As long as he just goes after these bastards and he puts, you know, things back into order and, you know, bring things that are sensible, you know, not only common sense, you know, but rational and, and correct in our, into our society. Uh, take us away from this political theater, this, this circus act that's been staged upon our, our country, you know? Get us out of funding wars and all that. I mean, that's not our business. That shouldn't be our business. Trump had the platform on no more wars. Where they got to work on that, really. We got to get our country from that. I don't know how many. How much is it? Thirty-two, thirty-three trillion dollars. We're in debt, and that I thing know. only keeps on rising every day. You know, and something has to be done regarding the vaccine. They they need to really look into that. In other words, people need to be in jail, and I don't mean one or two CEOs. I mean Hundreds of thousands of people need to be locked up. Yeah. Well, Everybody you know, that complied. Yeah. You know what I'm observing, Vlad? I'm on this new Substack notes, which they're calling it the new Twitter. And it's only mm-hmm. been going for a week. And a lot of the old timey journalists are writing on Substack now. And they came in on notes. And you know what the mantra is for so many of those who defended the COVID lockdowns and Dr. Fauci and we're all in with all of the you know, totalitarianism, their mantra right now is we just need to move on. We just need to move on. Now there's all this evidence coming out about the death rates, the miscarriage rates, the problems that people are having with so many side effects. They don't want to hear about any of that. They don't want to report on it. They just want to move on. And I'm like, no, there has to be a reckoning. There absolutely has to be a reckoning or they'll do it again. You know, you know, uh, Jenny, this might not hit necessarily home because as a Hispanic, you know, I have that advantage that I know Spanish, so I'm in that area as well. As much as I'm an American, love my country, our country, you know, but the son of a prominent singer just died two weeks ago. He was 27. He suffered from SADS, sudden adult death syndrome at 27. My uh, heart infarction with uh, a fibrillation, and nobody was home. Nobody was able to attend to him. He instantly died. Young Julian Figueroa, son of Joanne Sebastian, uh, uh, the great singer who died maybe seven, eight years ago, prior to him, maybe 10 by now. His only son was an actress from Costa Rica by the name of Maribel Guardia. Now, I don't expect you to know that background, okay, unless you know that world. But if you do, my respects. But he just dropped dead, and the news media, like, Whatever. He might as well have just been doing drugs. It has not even been mentioned in the news. Was he healthy? He, he was healthy. Young, strong, healthy, 27-year-old, recently married with a child. Oh, he left a beautiful heart. wife and a baby boy with a big estate. It just makes Damn me so it. sad. No, exactly. It makes me even sadder because the guy had a future up-and-coming singer. Basically, he had it in the bag. Because of his father's legacy, you know, even to call it in his shadow, whatever he was, he he already had come out as an actor. He had he was coming up up and singing, beautiful voice. People respected him, knew him since he was a child when he was born, nineteen ninety five, and S A D, and you know what, what what that means, S A D. Yeah, sudden adult and no one, death. No one is talking about it. No one is mentioning that in Spanish. It's all been mentioned in English. Did he suffer from sad? Did he die suddenly? Did he suddenly die suddenly because of COVID? And I know he was fully vaxxed. Son, adult, death. Yeah, there has to be a reckoning. I'm, I'm serious. And, and, and before you came into the show, Vlad, I talked about how the people who need to pay for it, for this reckoning, are, are the drug companies. Those oh, people... Yeah. Sitting on their billions of dollars. Well, in, in, well not only that, but... Corporations. Uh-huh. Jenny, I'm sorry to cut you off, but not only them, but according to Robert Malone, a lot of people, biologists, 
uh, are, are involved in all this. All these scientists who are in Big Pharma, they are involved. Because Malone let it out, out of the bag a long time ago. And it was good that he actually said things that he's been and he's been ostracized and censored and all that. I'm not saying those things are good, but he's been having to fight the good fight and pay along the way, even probably losing any licenses that he could have held to, to but he knew the background. But a lot of these sciences that, that have gotten rich, that have actually contributed to making this vaccine and know better and went quiet, silent into the night without saying a damn thing, they need to be held responsible including the medical medical doctors and nurses, everybody that knew, they need to be put under the guillotine. I'm sorry to say it that way. Well, they should at least be held accountable to the point where it is impossible for them to do it again. And and they're already talking about the next big pandemic on the worldwide level. World well, well, yeah, Fauci just, just said it a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago in, in an interview he was before people. Something's going to happen in 2024. So this son of a bitch knows what's happening, has known, and is in on it. And they need to use that against him. How do you know that 2024 something's going to come up? Suddenly on the next elections? And they've been talking about it. You know this better than I do, Jenny. The Marburg one. You know the Marburg virus, right? I know yeah, you're they've been talking about that. Marburg, but they've also been talking about H5N1, which is the bird flu. And I wouldn't be surprised if they used that one as their next big thing. Yeah. Well, Brady says here, how about on trial? The problem is when you have a corrupt system in, in government, in, in our judicial system, you cannot get fair trials. No. You cannot and get, this is going to have to be people's trials before the people of the United States of America. Well, th- this is why I'm all in with Robert Kennedy Jr., and if somehow they're able to derail Trump so that he can't run or whatever, I, I am going to vote for him because he's got the will. He has the will to do it. And again, this 20 years of speaking out very loudly, but being censored for 18 years, you know, uh, he, he's got the street credibility to say, yes, I can do this. And I, I think, you know, anybody who has some skin in the game, you've lost a loved one, you've lost a friend. I've lost several friends during this COVID thing. Um, you know, we need to demand that there's a reckoning and back him up with everything we got. And I'll tell he you- needs, He needs to be protected too. Oh, he I, needs, I bathe, He needs to be heavily, heavily protected. They're gonna wanna I take him out. I bathe that man in prayer. They're, they're, they're gonna wanna bathe. take him out. I know what I'm telling you. They're gonna wanna take him out. Believe me, Vlad, they've already tried. And you know, I believe in prayer. I believe in angelic protection. And so I'm constantly bathing them in prayer. All of those who need to still be alive at the end of the day to make certain that we tear this thing down. But it, it is not easy and it's going to be a, it's going to be a war. And again, it's that posture of the most, uh, popular journalists of can't we all just move, a, move along? You know, nothing to see here. They don't want to be held accountable. And I just feel like the journalist class has to have their feet held to the fire as well. Exactly. Boy, exactly. I would agree. I agree with you a thousand percent right there. No, fuck that. A million percent. They need to what? not only be held accountable, they need to face trial by jury. And it's already, it, and, and, the, and the verdict has already come in. All of them are guilty of sin. There's no getting away. There's no possible anything. They're on record for speaking their nonsense. They send many people to their death. People trust them. People do not trust the media anymore. And those people, I mean, I, I'm signed up right there on, on Telegram, the app to vaccine something dot ME or CA something. And I constantly hear all these messages. My mother died. My father died. My brother died. A friend died after the second, third vaccine. And they tell you what vaccine they took. They develop blood clots. They develop uh Cancer, cancer and blood clots. Then the following day, they die. I mean, enough is enough. I know it's gonna, all that's gonna continue. With, unfortunately, with those that took it, I don't think there's any way to revert any any of that. I got family members that took that shit, so I I know they're gonna drop. But they're in their mid sixties right now. Um, all of them are retirees, so I I know they're not gonna be around. I just well, I just have a, ne- a niece that just came coming out of the closet. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's kind of breaking our heart because we never had issues like that in our family. 
I've dealt with that, but from a out of my family situation, you know, it's easy to give advice from outside, from a biblical perspective outside your family. So now I'm having to deal with that. And that's well, not an I'll easy. tell you, Vlad, everybody just wants to have family and someone to love. And when I've had friends who've come out, you know, I understand why they just want to have a partner to share their life with. And I just can't condemn that, you know. I don't feel to condemn it as a Christian. Well, not that it is, is condemning. I mean, we, we, we love my niece. Uh, we're accepting her in many ways. It's just this one's a biggie that I, I have to, I'm not going to put my Christianity on the side that by no means. You know what I mean? I, I, I have to do the work of a, of a preacher. Does that mean every time I see her, I shove it down her throat? No. no We've had these conversations to. before and she, and she promised and she even guaranteed that she wasn't into this. And I go, well, normally when you have a lot of friends like this, it's because you normally support this lifestyle and or you're into it. I go, don't bullshit me. I wasn't born yesterday. I've, I've been around, I've been, I've been around for 50 years and I go, and, and, and you know, it's not my first rodeo around homosexual, the LGBTQ community. I've worked with many. I've talked to many. That's why I have friends at work. I don't make enemies and it's good to hear people. And they'll give you the ins and out and how they work. And I go, I haven't met the extreme ones, like the pedal, pedal types or anything. Thank God. I don't admit that's those kind of friendship or, or work or coworker relationships. And these are people that I could see at, when I meet them at the supermarket, at, you know, uh, putting gas in the car, well, you know, stuff like that. We still talk. Hey, what's going on, man? How you been? You know, so in my respect. But I, I had told my niece, these circles will influence you. And but according to my other ne- grandnephews, uh, like on my nephew's side, they they told me that they've always seen her weird. Like she she's not a normal girl. In other words, kind of like tomboyish, toughy type. Now that went under my radar because I'm not lo- normally looking at that. I always saw the feminine young lady now at twenty. Whatever she does, that's going to be her life. My job, along with my nephew and, and family, is the ones that are stronger in the faith is to. Not only love her, we continue to love her. We're not going to ostracize, censor, abandon, disavow, none of that shit. I'm not advocating for none of that. I'm just saying our job is to share because we're going to stand before the living God one day. You know what I mean, Jenny? And well, I got- I've, I've watched this, Vlad. Any, I've know? watched this with my niece who her parents are, you know, my bro- my husband's brother and his family. They're the most loving people. And when she came out, she has three daughters. Uh, they just chose to love and they've been so supportive of her and her partner and let them live with them for a time when she was struggling financially. And I just feel like if that's not your posture, if your posture is to ostracize and not want to help, you are cutting yourself off from so much potential joy with your family and just everybody coming in and having a reunion and we're together and we have these three beautiful granddaughters and then lo- I think it's so important to extend, extend the hand of fellowship to their partner. You know, your family too. We love you too. Whether they're married or not, we accept you. I think that is so healthy and good. And especially for the kids, you know, to just see this, this friendship and love is very, very powerful. Because you can't fix the situation. You can't say to that young lady, you have to marry a man and be a heterosexual or else. You know, that's not going to help anybody. But when you're in a posture of acceptance and love, it's not like you have to accept the lifestyle or say this is good. When well, we're it, clearly it's true. Told- I, I kind of look at it also with like, a, even though this is not family, like a lot of my lifelong friends that went in and out of jail and some of them pursued the criminal life. I love a lot of those friends. I haven't seen them in years, some of them. Others are locked up, but they were great friends as I was growing up. But they went with misguided values into life, knowing all, all this. Had, they'd heard it from the parents. They heard it from the church. They heard it from their friends. But they decided to take that walk. I love them, and I back them up any day. The only thing I couldn't ever agree with was the life of crime that they live. Yeah. I had it for one time. I had When I was younger, in my mid-20s, early to mid-20s, I had a lot of ex-con friends. And I said, you know, we're at the bar. We're chilling with friends at the park. I'm down with you to defending you, but... You know, as I, I was getting older, I started noticing, why am I putting my life at risk for these guys? You know? You want to correct their lives, but you cannot intrude. You cannot 
superimpose yourself. You know what I mean? Right. And I have to respect that they have to make the willing choice to leave that lifestyle. And I've seen people come out, and that's a beautiful thing. Some I see from time to time. Others I see more often. And again, others I probably don't see. I don't know what happened. I'm, I'm assuming they're they either moved out of state and settled down or they're locked up because that's where they were heading. Or they're dead. That's the worst case scenario, which is dead, you know? Yeah. But what I'm saying is I always cared about them despite that I didn't understand exactly or was willing to understand, not that, not from lack of intelligence, but not willing to engage in that kind of lifestyle, the criminal life, because that's not how I was raised. And I didn't have all those things in their mind that could have been even the, the most excuses because some of them came from good families, had no excuse to have been in a gang and to have been criminals. They just were misguided for wrong friendships and hanging out and wanting to belong. Again, they're friends. If I see them on the street, shake hands, what's going on, brother? How you been? But we're, we don't buddy-buddy up because they, they have not only a rap sheet, but the cops see them and they know them. They'll pull them over and they'll pull the person over with them, you know? And I don't want to be in that group. No, so I love them. Despite that, I don't agree with them. And they're, they're friends, they're fellow Latinos, but they're in the wrong side of, on the wrong side of history. Yeah, this is what I got into when my kids were teenagers. And their friends occasionally would start making bad choices. And we had many, many long conversations about being tempted to go do what your friends are doing. And how do you... How do you stay kind and loving and Christ-like, but detach a little bit, you know, say, I just can't go where you're going. And it's not easy, you know, and I just told them to detach lovingly, as lovingly as possible. If you feel like you're being seduced or pushed even into criminal behavior, and some of these kids were committing crimes, um, you know, vandalism or whatever, you know, recognize the penalties for those things are high. And my youngest son has decided he wants to go into law enforcement. And he told me he is so grateful that he never did anything like that. Because if you do, you get a record. You cannot become a police officer. And so, you know, I know he was tempted at times to do all kinds of crazy stuff. And um, you only have so much control over your kids. Once they turn 16, you know, they just have to kind of make their own choices. But... I'm really glad that he, he was able to make it through that kind of like 16 to 20 year old time frame without, without getting in too much trouble. <laughs> I always get in a little trouble, but well, thank you so much, Vlad. I think I'm going to go back to another quote from Kennedy. Hey. Somebody else wants to join in. Yeah. You know what, Jenny? Good talking to you too. All right. Here is the final quote from Robert Kennedy Jr.'s epic announcement speech and we start censoring people at the very very beginning and you know hamilton madison adams said we put freedom of expression in the first amendment because all the other member amendment all the other rights depend on that if you give a government license to silence its critics it now has license for any atrocity so as soon as they as soon as they knew, as soon as they knew they could censor us, as soon as they knew they could censor us, they then went after the other part of the First Amendment, uh, freedom of worship. They closed every church in this country without any scientific citation for a year, without any uh, notice and comment rulemaking. Democracy was simply abolished. They then went after freedom of assembly. They told us we had to social distance. They went after our property rights, the Fifth Amendment. They closed 3.3 million businesses with no due process, no just compensation. They got rid of Seventh Amendment jury trials. They said, they said, they said, if you're involved with a with a countermeasure, no matter how no matter how egregious the injury you caused, no matter how negligent you were, no matter how reckless, you cannot be sued. And here's what the Seventh Amendment says. It says, no American shall be deprived the right of a trial before a jury of his peers in case or controversies exceeding $25. Well, it does. There's no pandemic exception. And, and by the way, the framers knew all about pandemics. 
because there were two epidemics during the Revolutionary War. One, there was an epidemic, a malaria epidemic in Virginia that decimated General Washington's truth. It was a smallpox epidemic that disabled the armies of New England at the very moment they conquered Quebec, and they had to withdraw. Otherwise, today, Canada would be part of the United States. And, and, um, and by the way, we've had epidemic, but between the end of the revolution and the ratification of the Constitution, the nine years, there were epidemics in every city that killed tens of thousands of people, cholera epidemics, smallpox epidemics, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, etc., malaria epidemics. They knew all about them, but they didn't put that in the, in the Constitution. The Constitution was built for hard times. It wasn't, it wasn't built for the easy time. It was built during the Civil War. There were 659,000 soldiers who died in the Civil War. That's the equivalent of 7,200,000 today. Our country was this close from falling apart. It was a much worse crisis than this pandemic. Yet when Lincoln tried to, uh, to, to prohibit, to ban habeas corpus, the court said, you, don't, you can't do that. You cannot do that. It doesn't matter how bad the crisis is. You cannot do it. It's the Constitution. It's the heart and soul of our country. So that was the final clip I'm sharing in my video of the day over on my Substack. I'd really encourage everybody to go listen to the whole speech. Uh, it's being analyzed everywhere. And honestly, I think the best analysis came over the last 24 hours from Bree. She did a sterling job on both her um, television program. Can't remember the name of it. It's tied to the Hill publication, but her YouTube on that was fabulous. I, I embedded that in my Substack last night, and then um, there's just been a lot of of discussion about who this man is, what he brings to the table. He is about as anti-establishment of a candidate as there could be. And um, I love that Dennis Kucinich was the one who introduced him for the speech. Also a stalwart congressional person who stood up in many righteous ways to the powers that be. And um, you can often tell who someone is by who their enemies are, who's denigrating them, and who their supporters are. And I like the people who are standing up and supporting Robert Kennedy Jr., it's funny, the media over the last few hours, they've really zeroed in on the fact that his family for years have disavowed his vaccine activism and that they cannot support his candidacy because of that. And they've just openly come out. So that's what the press is zeroing in on. Not even his family supports him. Well, that's okay. You know, we don't have to see everything the same way. I have family members who are quite embarrassed by my vaccine activism. That's okay. You know, I have a different view than they do. But boy, it's going to be fun to watch over these next few months. And the idea of him and Marianne Williams, Williamson and Joe Biden having a debate, that, that's a debate I would pay money to watch on pay-per-view. My goodness, that would be a moment. So, like I said, I would not be surprised to see President Trump inviting Robert Kennedy Jr. to be his running mate. I think that would be the ticket to beat. <laughs> My goodness. I think I will I will have died and gone to heaven twice if that happens. But we'll see. Does anyone else want to call in? I think I'm going to wind it down. Thank you, everyone, for stopping by, and especially Vlad for calling in. I hope you all guys, uh, all of you guys have a great day.